Hello, salams, and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast with your hosts, me, Yasmin Lee, and Zara Chowdhury. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication dedicated to travel, culture, and history from a Muslim perspective. In this series, we'll be talking to writers, artists, historians, and a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum everyone, I am Minus Yasmin this time round. I'm joined by Hassan Munir for this episode, who will begin by telling us more about himself. Um, so I am a historian by training, more so in the process. Um, I am currently completing my master's in Middle Eastern history from the university in Toronto in Canada. Um, so I'm based in Canada, I'm originally from Pakistan. And, uh, but I've lived most of my life here in Canada, and uh, I've been involved for several years in uh, different projects to make Islamic history more accessible and also to uh, stretch the definition of what we mean when we say Islamic history into different parts of the world and different time periods and different events in which Islam and Muslims have played a significant role. Um, and I'm also a research fellow for Yakin Institute for Islamic Research based in the United States, um, which produces uh, research papers to help Muslims strengthen their conviction um, and also respond uh, in an academic way to Islamophobic arguments. Right. And the f- first time I think I came across you was when I read your paper entitled How Islam Spread Throughout the World. And that was also for the Yakin Institute, right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah, because I really, really enjoyed reading that. And I knew we had to get you on here once I had, but we could prob- probably do 10 episodes just based on that paper because you cover so many different areas and so many different periods of history. Um, but I was just wondering why you wrote it, like what the purpose behind it was. Um, so the paper came about as uh, a response um, to one of the uh, very long-standing uh, arguments uh, used by um, people uh, in support of their bigotry against Muslims. Um, and that particular argument is that, you know, quote unquote, Islam spread by the sword, right? Um, and the only reason Islam is prevalent in particular regions of the world today is because of uh, violence and conquest and slavery. So I wanted to respond to that argument, not to whitewash our history and completely deny that at times Muslims have engaged in um, activities, um, whether they are justified, whether they are unjustified, what the context was, etc. These are very big questions, Um, but they have engaged in activities um, that were Um, basically violent, right? Um, Right. But that being said, um, there has not been a uh, development of the present-day global Islamic community um, that can be attributed to conquest, etc. And I just wanted to challenge that argument, show all of its loopholes, show all of its shortcomings. Um, and then in the follow-up paper that I did, so there were sort of two parts, two different papers um, on that same topic. The first one was on um, just breaking down the argument that Islam spread by the sword. Um, and the second part was 
you know, the follow-up question, well, if Islam didn't spread by the sword, then what were the different uh, factors and mechanisms that were responsible for the spread of Islam into different regions? Um, so that was the more thorough paper um, with many, many examples of the many ways um, trade, intermarriage, migration, um, you know, the appeal of Islam, uh, the universality of the faith tradition, all of these things, um, which describe and explain how Islam spread to different parts of the world. Right. And I'm going to link both papers in our show notes as well. Um, and I really, really encourage people to have a read. And especially, I think, if you're a student of the Middle East or of, of Islam, um, even your bibliography, I think, is a really good resource to have. So for this episode, I wasn't sure at first um, which topic to go for, just because you covered so many in that paper. Um, but in the end, we settled on Islam in China, primarily because I feel it's quite topical at the moment with what's happening with the Uyghur community, um, which we'll talk a bit about later. And also just because I felt like, from a personal point of view, I don't know that much about is the history of Islam in that region. And <laughs> I just wanted to know more, basically. So to begin with, could you maybe tell us when Islam first reached China and how that happened? Um, absolutely. So Islam uh, certainly reached um, China uh, very early on um, in Islamic history. So uh, one important question to keep in mind um, in this discussion is how precisely we define China or Chinese, because, um, you know, Many people uh, may assume um, when we speak of China that we uh, are referring to the present day state uh, with its current borders, right? Um, but in fact, um, the definition and uh, the sort of limitations of where China ends and where South Asia begins and where Central Asia begins, where Russian Siberia and Mongolia begin, uh, where Southeastern Asia begins, all of these, um, you know, it's been much more, uh, flu you know, fluid and flexible um, in terms of uh, how we define what it means to be Chinese. Um, another important thing to keep in mind, um, and this serves as a sort of, uh, you know, an important thing to mention, um, just in terms of why this discussion is important, is that the two, you know, civilizations during the so-called Dark Ages, when oftentimes when we learn history, uh, world history in a Western context, um, and from a Eurocentric perspective, we are thought of this time period, um, the medieval times, the Middle Ages, and often referred to as the Dark Ages, because there was not much cultural productivity uh, within the European uh, context, but it's important to recognize that um, many places in many different parts of the world, there was a huge uh, upsurge of cultural productivity uh, during this time, including in the uh, Islamic context, um, in the Chinese context, these two civilizations, and then, as we'll mention later on, the Chinese Muslim context as well. Um, and finally, one more thing before I move forward, uh, you know, I would like to mention that um, I may improperly pronounce uh, some of the uh, the Chinese uh, names in the Chinese languages. I am, uh, you know, in advance, I apologize for that. And uh, it's a learning process for all of us. I am still in the learning process. And uh, hopefully, um, we can all learn to properly uh, pronounce these names. Now, coming to your question, 
um, how Islam spread to China initially. Um, so the regions into which Islam spread very early on had pre-Islamic uh, relationships with uh, Chinese uh, you know, dynasties um, and Chinese states. Um, so in particular, um, the Persians, right? Um, the Persians had it and the Central Asians had pre-existing trade relationships, uh, some level of diplomatic relationships. They're certainly very aware of each other. And when Islam spread to those regions, um, the, uh, you know, the Persians um, were sort of, um, you know, converted to Islam gradually, and uh, they continued to indulge in those same diplomatic and trade activities. So what we call today the famous Silk Road that ran through Central Asia um, with this uh, eastern endpoint in China and its uh, western endpoint in uh, Central Asia, in the Persian cities, etc., um, it became the conduit to, to which, you know, Muslim merchants and Muslim uh, travelers, even traveling Muslim scholars, uh, diplomats would visit um, China. So um, we, I, I think we will end up getting into this discussion of uh, did any of the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, yes. wasalam, did they yes. actually visit? <laughs> right. But um, just to give an overview before we come to that very interesting question in particular um, is that. Um, the first diplomatic communities uh, were established. Uh, so rather, I should say, um, the first Muslim communities established in China were just groups of diplomats from the Muslim empires going into China, mostly mm. Arabs and Persians, um, as well as, um, you know, I think it's no coincidence that China's oldest and largest mosque, you know, the Great Mosque of Xi'an, um, that is it's quite famous, especially for its very distinct sort of ar architecture, mm. um, and thought to have built, been, been built in 742 CE. Um, it stands in the city of uh, what was then known as Chang'an, and it marked the easternmost point of the Silk Road. So in that particular city is where the first mosque is built. So that was one route, and the other route was through the Indian Ocean, so making stops in um, the Indian subcontinent in Southeast Asia, the merchants would travel through the Indian Ocean as well and move on up uh, their way into China. So you mentioned already the Sahaba. So that was actually my next question, because you have the Huaisheng Mosque, I believe it's pronounced Huaisheng. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but so the, the stories kind of associated with that mosque is that it was built sometime in the 630s, which makes it one of the oldest mosques in the world. Um, and the story is that the companion of the Prophet Sallallahu Saad ibn Abi Waqas, he was the one who went there, he traveled there and he built the mosque and he's also buried nearby. But I just wondered what, how accurate those sources are or how authentic, um, is that clear in any way? Um, I would wish it were more clear. Um, as it stands um, from all the uh, evidence and all of the arguments uh, in favor of that particular journey of uh, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas and uh, some of the other Sahaba are sometimes mentioned as well. Um, the evidence uh, is not very um, conclusive, it's certainly not conclusive um, in my understanding, um, but I will say uh, two things uh, that I think are important to keep in mind about this particular theory of whether the Sahaba went to China or not. Um, the first is uh, when we are looking at history, absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. So just because um, right. we do not have uh, you know, compelling evidence and arguments at the 
present moment um, may just be that uh, we are not searching in the right places, may just be that um, the particular methodology that we are using to try to, uh, you know, observe and understand uh, the evidence, such as the mosque that you mentioned, um, needs be redeveloped. So there's many factors, uh, many variables, um, and I think it's still useful to keep it alive as a theory. Um, you know, what I don't think we should do is spread it uh, online and on the internet and in our conversations as if it were a well-established fact, yeah, right? right. Um, we should just do our due diligence about that, but it's still a useful theory to keep alive. And the other reason to keep it alive is uh, because um, there's this, you know, relationship, very interesting relationship between history and memory, right? So for the mm -hmm. Chinese Muslims, uh, this is a very important part of their cultural memory, and um, it should not be entirely discounted and tossed out the window either, right. because um, pe what people believe about their own history is very important to pay attention to, um, because that shows you um, how they engage with their own history and what message, what lessons they are trying to learn from that history, what they are hoping to inherit. So to understand the Muslim communities in China today, um, and in China, since the history of the last you know, 1400 years, I think it's important to make sure that we do not entirely toss it out the window, but do our due diligence and keep exploring, keep looking for more compelling evidence and arguments. Right. Yeah. And also just not, not, um, not state it as though it's like written in a hadith as though it comes from anything like that, because obviously we don't have those sources. Right. So you mentioned earlier that the earliest people to visit China in terms of Muslims were diplomats. So what happened after that? Were they the ones who um, went on to establish communities there or they simply established trade links? Um, well, the diplomats themselves um, are obviously sent uh, for intergovernmental relations, right? So they are sent with messages and letters between rulers, etc. Um, the real sort of establishment of Islam in China early on came uh, because of the activities of merchants, right? Um, so, uh, you know, Chinese culture um, is very, uh, you know, rooted in uh, merchant culture, I should say. Um, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on trade, etc. Um, and we sometimes uh, tend to not recognize just how interconnected um, the pre-modern world was in terms of trade. You know, we speak about globalization and all of these things nowadays as a, as a modern day phenomenon, but the world was very interconnected. So, um, it was really the merchants um, who took Islam from the Arabian Peninsula, from uh, you know the Middle East as we know it, to which Islam first spread, and they took it from there um, and spread it into places such as um, the Indian subcontinents, such as you know Southeast Asia, and into China as well. So just to give you an example. Um, you know, we have many examples of Muslim communities uh, developing, very established Muslim communities developing in the some of the main uh, Chinese ports and uh, trade centers. Um, the Abbasid uh, ruler, you know, Al-Mansur, um, he used to boast that there are no obstacles for trade between his new city, 
Baghdad at the time and these uh, Chinese commercial cities such as Guangzhou and Kaifeng, etc. Um, and just a very illustrative example, um, I'll give two actually. So in 1877, for example, there was a rebellion um, in Guangzhou in one of the Chinese cities and an estimated 120,000 non-Chinese were uh, killed as part of, um, you know, crushing that rebellion. And it is said that a large number of these were Muslims, Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians, right? So um, 120,000 is not a small number for uh, foreigners, right? Um, yeah, it is a all. very large especially number. Especially in that so, time period. Especially in that time period, exactly. So, um, of course, a tragic incident, um, but it does give us an, a sort of showing um, that uh, there were these established centers. And, and again, coming back just briefly to the question of how we define uh, China. So there's also evidence, for example, you know, as early as the late 800s um, that there were established Muslim communities uh, in the Korean Peninsula. Right in the Korean Peninsula, okay, so the Koreas okay, as we know them today, right? So and those were merchants as well. So in many of these places, far off places um, that you might not think of, uh, there were Muslim communities, um, and this is like 1,200 years ago. Right, and is there any indication as to what um, the relationship was like between these small communities of Muslims and um, the majority people of that region? Um, it seems. Uh, from the evidence available that it was uh, a generally cordial relationship. I mean, I did just give an example of a rebellion which was crushed and mm. a very large number of people were killed. Um, so obviously uh, things could and, and they always um, you know, can uh, go sour even in the best of relationships. But um, generally, you know, trade is such a good uh, vehicle for um, spreading messages and spreading culture because um, the initial conversation is very easy to start because it's mutual benefit, right? Everybody sees their own benefit in a particular transaction. So they come together and they, the, the conversation sort of icebreaker, starting the conversation is very easy because you're talking about trade and then obviously the observations of different cultures and the exchange begins from there, right? So um, generally speaking, uh, and this is, you know, part of why the Silk Road is so famous and so successful, why the Indian Ocean trade routes were so famous and they lasted so long and they were so successful is because um, despite whatever differences um, they may have had, uh, the people were able to get along um, just for the mutual benefit that they were all involved in this trade and they wanted to collectively benefit from it. Right. And just thinking now of a more modern context, I was thinking of the Uyghur people and, um, you know, I think most of us are slowly becoming more and more aware of the persecution that they're undergoing and the extremely difficult circumstances that they're having to endure. Um, but I just wondered, you know, if you could tell us a bit about their roots in terms of their ethnicity, because although we're aware of what's going on politically, I feel like many of us, myself included, don't know very much about their history or who they are. Um, so the Uyghur Muslim situation currently in China is uh, obviously very um, unfortunate. They're facing persecution. There's no doubt about it. Um, and persecution uh, of a very, um, 
you know, I mean, finding the words to describe it, um, people can do their own research. It's, so it's difficult for me just to find words to describe it right. and thinking about the fact that it's just being brushed under the rug and not really being paid attention to in the international community. Um, but speaking of their history and their particular identity, so um, the Uyghurs are an important case, again, in this question of uh, where does China end and where does another neighboring region begin and what has been the historical relationship. Um, so the Uyghurs are a Turkic people, you know, the Turco-Mongol peoples of Central Asia. Um, they are not ethnic uh, Han Chinese people. And the Uyghurs are primarily based in northwestern China, in Xinjiang, as it's called. Um, but Xinjiang itself, um, it's always had closer cultural ties uh, westwards with the central uh, Asian um, sort of milieu rather than um, eastward, though they've certainly had relations throughout their history with China just mm. because of their, you know, geographic placement. Right. Um, and you can you as kind well of as... see that in the architecture of their mosques too, right? They're very, like, right. they have, have similarities with Persian archi architecture as well. Right, absolutely. And and, is, um, and they also present an interesting case of, of this sort of um, cultural exchange that I hope we can speak a bit more to. But the Uyghur, Peaker, uh, sorry, the Uyghur uh, people, I apologize, themselves, um, they uh, have a very interesting history of being right on the Silk Road, and um, which is, again, you see the present situation as part of China's project to revive the concept of the Silk Road throughout Central Asia. So these are not coincidences, everything is connected. Um, so you see their particular uh, placement, um, but they do have their distinct culture that they have held on to uh, very firmly. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a very a beautiful culture, um, something that um, we hope uh, we can all uh, appreciate and um, you know, uh, engage and sort of experience um, in our lives. Most definitely. Um, and I also wanted to mention there's a campaign called Uyghur Atlas, which is run by a group of friends from Australia. And I know that one of the people involved, her name is Subi Bora, her family are also of Uyghur origin. Um, and what they've done is design these T-shirts that really celebrate Uyghur culture and all the proceeds made through selling them will go to uh, Uyghur causes as well. So if people would like to donate and buy those t-shirts and I'll include the links in the show notes. Going back now to what you said about cultural exchange, I was wondering if you could tell us more about what that actually involved. Uh, yes, so I think um, a lot of times, uh, you know, I'm very interested, um, as people may also see when if they get a chance to uh, read the paper uh, for Yakin Institute, which will be linked, as you said, um, under the podcast. Um, I think it's very interesting to see not just, um, uh, you know, uh, the presence uh, of Muslims in different places, but also exchanges, right? So um, again, I really uh, think we need to appreciate more the interconnectedness of Muslim and non-Muslim uh, civilizations, empires, communities, and also between Muslims just in different parts of the world. So, for example, I'll just give you three examples, just to give you an idea. And obviously, everything we're discussing in this podcast is sort of just the introductory food for thought. You know, there's so much right. more 
could learn and, and maybe we can compile a introductory reading list uh, and even that would just yeah, be, would be good. The surface, right? Um, I think so. So for example, paper, right? So paper initially um, generally believed to have been initially uh, developed um, and produced in China and then uh, in the year 751, so very early on, um, there was a, a political situation in Central Asia, obviously the Muslim Empire expanding into Central Asia and uh, rubbing against uh, the Chinese sphere of influence there. And there was a battle, the Battle of Talas in 8, 851. And, um, you know, it is believed that some of the Muslim, uh, sorry, some of the Chinese uh paper makers or people with that particular skill were captured as uh, prisoners of war, brought into uh, the, the Persian sphere of influence into what we know today as the Middle East. And this is how the spread of paper and, you know, we know how central paper has been to the spread of Islamic knowledge, um, which is an enormous topic in and of itself, right? Yeah, so it's a definitely. important cultural exchange that occurred very early on between these two um uh, cultural spheres. One of my favorite examples um, is uh, a cookbook. So the first, uh, seeing that everybody everywhere loves food, um, what the, in the 14th century, we have what is considered the first cookbook written uh, in the sort of Chinese cultural sphere or the oldest surviving you know, cookbook in Chinese history. Um, and when you actually start looking at the ingredients and recipes uh, laid out in the book, you start to see a very strong Islamic uh, cultural influence, right? Really? So you start That's so discover interesting. It is. So you see words like uh, za'faran, right, for saffron, right, these Persian words or these uh, Turkic uh, language words, um, kima, right? So kima is a is sort of a minced meat, yeah. right? Um, kebabi, uh, kofte, right? You start to see these words. But my favorite example is the particular uh, dietitian. So this, the person who wrote this was a dietitian for China's Yuan dynasty. Um, and uh, this particular person, um, I'm not sure if he didn't know the word for chickpeas or whatever the situation was, but when he was describing chickpeas in one of his recipes, he literally, the expression translates to Muslim beans, right? <laughs> it's called the Muslim beans, right? So these kind of interesting uh, sort of cultural exchanges, and this wasn't meant to be an international sort of recipe kind of cookbook. It was yeah. supposed to be a Chinese uh, cultural cookbook, and it shows you how much of an influence uh, the some of the Islamic cultures had had into um, the Chinese culture itself. And finally, um, another example that, uh, you know, many, especially because I know many people who listen to this podcast will be travelers, right? Um, and one thing to pay attention to is very closely are the particular designs and the particular, uh, you know, in the walls of monuments and, uh, you know, mosques, etc. Um, so, there's very interesting research coming out in recent years about um, the use of dragons in Islamic art, right? So we use okay. uh, dragons are obviously associated with uh, Chinese culture more than anything else. But the Seljuk Turks, especially that, you know, the Central Asian Turks, they picked up on that influence. Dragons became a very important motif for them, and when they moved into the Muslim world, and this you know enormous shift that happened that brought us the Seljuks and the Ottomans and the rest of the dynasties, they brought those motifs with them. So, for example, um, you can go to a place such as the, uh, the Sultan Han Kayseri in central Anatolia, and these are um, 
you know, Muslim sort of cultural buildings. But if you actually look at the walls, you see dragons etched into the walls. Oh, really? There are many. I mean, there's very interesting, compelling research that's coming out about, you know, starting in China, that particular influence and then mm-hmm. coming in to the um you know, the Muslim uh, sort of uh, what I should call the core of the Muslim world. And some of these peripheral regions have made enormous contributions to that. So my study background is Islamic art and archaeology, but I didn't actually know about the dragon motifs. Um, I do know that the luster technique, which was developed in Iraq during the Abbasid period, um, that was initially thought to have been influenced by Chinese techniques also. But I assume that exchange would also have taken place by the Silk Route. Uh, so crude, uh, or it could have been, uh, again, very important part that's sometimes not, you know, it's not as famous as the Silk Road is the Indian Ocean trade, but it was obviously uh, enormously important um, in the exchange of culture and uh, information and people as well. Right. And because we, we actually did a Insta story recently, it was a collaboration with Halal Safaris, who are a tour group based in Lamu and the Kenyan islands. Um, and the story was about Zheng He, the um, Chinese diplomat and explorer, and how he had actually, um, he had, him and his fleet had come to um, the coast of East Africa far before any Europeans had gone anywhere near there. Um, and there's a story that one of his ships, um, it was shipwrecked on one of the islands and there were 20 Chinese survivors who then went on to marry locally um, and have children with people on the island. Um, and they also found a lot of Mingira pottery in one of the ruins there on, on one of the islands. And I just thought that was so fascinating because I actually had no idea that the Chinese had any kind of history within that region. Uh, yes, absolutely. So I, I actually just recently um, came across this, this story as well. Um, and uh, I learned much more um, through the Instagram story um, that you had posted in um, that collaboration. Um, but again, it's a very um, interesting example of this of this cultural exchange. And it just, um, you know, when you see some of these examples, it just uh, opens your mind up that much further. And you're left wondering, well, what else has occurred in this wonderful world that we don't exactly. know about? Yet, yeah, but, that, you know. that's very true. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier about how we define, um, I mean, you were talking specifically about the Chinese, how we define what chi- what the Chinese is, but that's applicable um to the rest of the world because we kind of try and we tend to think in black and white terms and in terms of national identity and everything else when of course the world is so much more complicated than that absolutely so moving on now to the final part of the discussion um i believe you're going to tell us a bit about chinese scholarship and what the influence of that would have been on the rest of the muslim world uh, yes, that's uh, absolutely right. Um, I think, again, uh, most of these things are um, I'm trying to emphasize just because of, uh, you know, the fact that they are not sometimes um, recognized at all. Right. And, and mm. oftentimes we're surprised. And and uh, to make this point now, I think this is um, not an add on to Islamic history. This is Islamic history. Right. This is exactly. the history of a place where Muslims have lived, where Islamic influence has uh, both spread from other places and also developed locally. So it's extremely important for us to look at the scholarship. And I think uh, particularly because of the sort of the dynamic 
diversity uh, that it shows us, right? Because we're used to seeing very um, particular names, particular texts, and associating that with Islamic scholarship. But different cultures produce different kinds of writings. You notice different styles, different metaphors, different ways of explaining, you know, the message of Islam. And it's very beautiful to look at. And I think it's very important to appreciate that diversity and also to learn from it in our own uh, effort to sort of communicate the message, the true message of Islam in a very difficult uh, Islamophobic environment, right? So um, just to mention a few examples. um, So we obviously have uh, Muslim scholars who were born uh, in the Chinese context. And I think one of my... uh, without necessarily being of Chinese ethnicity. So I'll mention one of my favorite examples of that. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a Sheikha, right? It's a, it's a female scholar, one of the most prominent uh, female Hadith scholars in our history, you know, like the most prominent, you know, top 10 is what we're saying here. Um, Fatima bin Saad al-Khair and her father, Saad al-Khair, uh, you know, again, this incredible interconnectedness, he actually lived in Al-Andalus in the 12th century, right? So he lived wow, in Al-Andalus. So he traveled quite far then, didn't he? He traveled quite far, but he didn't he wasn't just traveling, he actually moved, right? So you say like for example, I'm going to move from, you know, Belgium to the UK or something like that, right? And it's like, wow, this is an incredible move. Imagine yeah. because the situation was uh sort of tightening up uh because of the politics in the particular region of Al-Andalus where Saad Al-Khair was, he the place he chose to move was actually China to one of the, the you know, the Muslim communities in China. And uh, near Kashgar, which is a city within China today, um in that area is where Fatima was born and where she grew up, right? And then in the 12th century, she went on um, to study uh, in Central Asia and she went to um, Iraq and Syria and studied in those regions. And eventually uh, she lived in Cairo and she passed away and she was buried in Cairo. So this sort of international story of a female Muslim scholar in the yeah, 12th century, um, right? And born in China and there's so many different you know, amazing things about this story, I think it's definitely worth looking into. So that's Fatima bin Saad al-Khair. But, you know, I think even more importantly for the context we're talking about are the Chinese Muslim scholars, the ethnically Chinese, um, who uh, discussed and understood and wrote about Islamic teachings within the uh, Chinese context. So in the 18th century, um, fairly, you know, relatively recently, um, the most famous sort of collection of texts uh, in Chinese Muslim history, uh, we could say, um, it's called the Han Kitab, right? Um, and these, it's, it's a canon of texts, so it's not just one book, but it's uh, books by different authors developed at around the same time. And the purpose there was to bring together um, traditional Islamic and traditional Confucian teachings, right? So Confucius being um, China's preeminent philosopher um, right. who has influenced uh, Chinese uh, culture more than, uh, you know, we can say more than anyone else, um, but they found all of these uh, similarities and all of these alignments and parallels between traditional Islamic teachings and Confucian teachings and tried to bring them together. So we have scholars such as um, 
again, I'm deeply sorry if I mispronounce these names, but Wang Dayu and Liu Ji, right, um, who are taking part in this. And I'm mentioning these names, uh, hoping people will, uh, you know, search them up because there's so many uh, things to know and so much to read about each of these individuals. Um, We can list their names as well in in the show notes so people can look them up too. I think that would be very helpful if we could do that. Absolutely. Um, and I'll just give a couple of more examples. Um, so uh, just to sort of illustrate the, the Muslim community here. So from Yunnan, which is southeastern China, uh, close to Southeast Asia, um, Yunnan had very well established uh, Muslim communities. So we have scholars such as Mazu of Yunnan um, emerging from there, very uh, eminent Chinese Muslim scholar. Um, his family claimed descent from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So um, although we, you know, he wasn't able to provide evidence at the time, um, there is evidence that there are many descendants of the Prophet and his family uh, who are uh, living in China and have been living there for centuries. Um, and if we uh, have the, the time, I just want to quickly um, illustrate what I was saying earlier. I just want to read out a quick passage, a uh, translated passage of one of Mazu's works, um, so I'm just going to go ahead with that. It's very yeah, short, just one paragraph, but sort of like the, the sort of stylistic description that we see um, from the Chinese Muslim culture. So he writes, Islam's highest principle holds that human beings are sojourning merchants, that the material world is the marketplace, that human nature and the heavenly decree are the capital, that exchanges with friends are the transactions, that personal intentions are the measuring scale, that good and evil are the goods for sale, that death is returning home, that God's rewards in heaven are riches, and that God's punishments in hell are poverty. The sojourning merchant always returns home, and the goods on loan in the end return to their original master. Whatever business you may be in, it comes and then it goes, flying by in no time at all. Fame and fortune have their seasons, as does conjugal love. So you see here in this passage, a very short passage, that he is making, um, uh, the point he is making is something all Muslims are very familiar with because it is constantly reiterated in our tradition. But the particular style, the kind of language he is using, making it seem as if it's a marketplace and everything we do is a transaction, uh, different ways of describing the Islamic message. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's something worth appreciating. Yeah, Um, And it's very familiar, too, because we have that language within Hadith, like comparing it to what people at that time are familiar with. Absolutely. It's just metaphors, right? Because different metaphors will resonate with different people. And that's how you communicate your message to them. Um, And I'm just going to quickly mention one more example, a very important Chinese Muslim scholar in the 19th century, um, Yusuf Ma Dekshin, um, you know, very prolific. He wrote over 30 books. Um, He is credited with uh, the first sort of um, eminent, complete translation um, of the Quran into the Chinese languages, um, as well as other works um, such as uh, Imam Busiri's Qasida Burda, he translated that, and some of the other sort of uh, famous works in Islamic history. Um, his journey uh, for Hajj is very interesting to read about. He went for Hajj in 1841, um, and uh, he obviously did a lot of traveling during that. He went to Syria.
Syria. Uh, he went to Palestine. He went to Egypt. He studied at Al-Azhar. Then he came back um, and became a very important leading figure um, for the Chinese Muslims in southern China, um, especially at a time, and this is an interesting uh you know, event in Chinese history, the Panthe Rebellion, in which the Muslim communities actually rose up against the government um, about 150 years ago, um, is to sort of, uh, you know, resist a very um, oppressive situation um, that was being uh, applied upon them. So I think that's worth looking into as well. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, going back to something you said earlier, um, I think we as Muslims, we're very good at defending our history. So if anybody criticizes us, we'll be like, no, in the Middle Ages, we did this, and we achieved this. But it's kind of absurd that we're not aware of the fact that at that same time, there was another great civilization producing incredible things. And it's even more absurd that we don't know about the, the exchange that took place between the two. Um, so I really hope that this will inspire people to read up more about it. And, you know, it's something we should know about. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, uh, there's a well-known sort of maxim in our tradition and it's uh, attributed to various people, including the Prophet ﷺ himself. It's um, essentially that, um, you know, wisdom is the, for the believer. Wisdom is like their own lost camel, right? Um, wherever you find it, it's yours. So, you know, you have to um, sort of uh, take it, right? And you have to make the best use of it, right? right? And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but um, many times in our history, and I'm really uh, appreciative of the work that Sacred Footsteps is doing and sort of highlighting these um, sort of lesser known uh, aspects of Islamic history, um, because, uh, you know, um, I'm just going to read out another passage because Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, he says it so eloquently, I don't know if I can say it any better. He says, in history, Islam showed itself to be culturally friendly and in that regard has been likened to a crystal clear river. Its waters, that is Islam, are pure, sweet and life-giving, but having no color of their own, they reflect the bedrock, the indigenous culture over which they flow. In China, Islam looked Chinese. In Mali, it looked African. Sustained cultural relevance to distinct peoples, diverse places, and different times underlay Islam's long success as a global civilization. Just to sort of underline this idea again of how important it is um, for us to get a true picture of what it means to be Muslim and make sure it is inclusive of our entire global community right and i think as um i I really love that quote and i think as um you know muslims living in non-muslim countries like we can learn so much from that because i feel like often identity culture you know there's all these issues that we're trying to deal with and grapple with and figure out who we even are and i think there's a lot we can learn from uh, muslims in china in that regard absolutely i am definitely 100 percent on that as well is there anything you want to add before we finish up? Um, that's about it, other than just to reiterate again, um, to reiterate again, sorry, that uh, uh, this is just scratching the surface, right? And there's much more to learn here for myself, for yourself, for everybody who's listening. Um, so hopefully we can uh, do everything we can to present uh you know, starting resources, et cetera. But um, also, 
it's very important, I think, um, seek out the Chinese Muslims in our local communities to seek out um, some of these people who are not as visible, some of these people who we tend to forget um, and, uh, you know, learn from them and, and ask about their experience and their parents' experiences, learn directly from them. Uh, I think that is the best way to learn, the best way to learn the uh, to learn to appreciate that sort of diversity of our ummah is just to be more um, open and outgoing right. and go to masajid where um, other communities might frequent more often, etc. And just get to learn about each other that way. Yeah, I think that's a really good note to finish on. I think so far in every episode I've said to people, would love to have you back, but really I mean it, like would love to have you back on here. Um, I think just the wealth of information you've given in this episode alone um, you know, we could talk for so much longer. Inshallah, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find all the names and all the information mentioned in this episode in our show notes at sacredfootsteps.org. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook, and we're on Twitter as sfootsteps. Footsteps.